Well, we continue to make our way through this powerful apostolic letter to the Christians in Colossae. After Paul's greeting and his commendation of them in verses 1 to 8, he prayed a powerful gospel prayer for them, and we looked at that prayer last week. In this prayer, he asked God to fill them with all wisdom and to cause them to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. He also asked for them to be strengthened with all power. And he wrote of the powerful work that God had done for them and in them by transferring them from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved Son. Now, in verses 15 to 20, the Apostle Paul presents one of the most powerful descriptions of the person of Jesus Christ found in our Bibles. Presenting this description of Christ originally to the dear saints who were in Colossae, he showed them what was missing in the false teaching that had crept into their little church. This this false teaching was missing, namely this, an adequate view of the person of Jesus Christ. Without an adequate view of the person of Jesus Christ, Christians are vulnerable to a whole host of Jesus Plus programs that always leave Christians feeling like they haven't done enough for God's acceptance, and and it leaves them feeling like they have to do something to help Jesus out. But dear friends, Jesus never needs our help. Since when did Jesus ever need our help? When Paul prayed for the Colossian believers to walk in a manner pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, he was praying for them to live their lives out of gospel thankfulness and out of gospel power. There's a world of difference between that and seeking spiritual power and strength outside of Christ and His gospel to help Jesus out. And it's so dangerous because it always becomes a matter of sinful pride And it always turns the gospel on his head because Jesus is treated as if he's not enough. And so Paul here in a picture puts the pedal to the metal and he begins to hammer in verses 15 to 20 a powerful description of the Lord Jesus Christ First, in His preeminence over all creation in verses 15 to 17. And then in His preeminence over all redemption, verses 18 
2.20. If you really want to know the truth of it, Paul is actually here bursting forth in a doxology of praise to Jesus Christ in these verses. It's almost as if he cannot contain himself. I've decided to only cover verses 15 to 17 this morning, highlighting the preeminence of Christ over all creation. And may the Spirit of Christ within us open all of our eyes to the total sufficiency of Jesus, as the Apostle Paul tells us three things about him. He's the firstborn, verse 15. He's the creator, verse 16. And he's the sustainer, verse 17. First, in verse 15, Paul says this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Christ being the image of the invisible God is in respect to his divinity. And Christ as the firstborn of all creation is in respect to the sovereign authority granted to him by his Father over all of creation. Paul first says he is the image of the invisible God. Sometimes we use that word image to mean resemblance, don't we? If we say that girl is the spitting image of her mother, what we mean is she resembles her mother in an amazing way. She's obviously not her mother, but she looks like her so much so that people comment all the time about it. Now, if you look around your church family, which child do you think is the spitting image of her mother? Adeline. Of course, it's Adeline. She looks so much like her mother that it's scary. But what is even more concerning is that Tolliver looks so much like his dad that it's downright terrifying. <laughs> of course, the word image in verse 15 does not mean that Christ only resembles the invisible God like Adeline and Tolliver resemble their parents. However, to be fair, this is precisely the way that the word image is used in Scripture in relation to man, in relation to us. In Genesis 1, we learn that mankind was made in the image of God. This means that in certain ways we were made like God and resemble Him. We are not God. We never will be God. But because in his wisdom, he created us in his image. We are like him in certain ways. And therefore, we have a value above everything else in the entire created order. 
What an amazing thing that God has done for us. And this should greatly affect the way that we treat and view others because being made in the image of God means that they have intrinsic worth. But being created in the image of God is not the same as being the image of God. In verse 15, the Apostle Paul specifically says that Christ is the image of God. The verb of being is used. He is the image of God. And that is the equivalent of saying He, in fact, is God. In chapter 2 of Colossians, Paul puts it this way. In Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The writer to the Hebrews has his own way of expressing it. He says, Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. Well, because Jesus is the image of God. Yes, and because He is the image of God, He does something that no other man or any other created thing, for that matter, can ever do. Jesus makes the invisible God visible in all His fullness. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate Deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. And Paul, having established that Jesus is God of very God, now begins to develop Christ's preeminence over all creation as the divine, uh, the divine one in order to impress upon us the total sufficiency of Christ. How does he do it? He does it by giving him the title, the firstborn of all creation. Today, Jehovah Witnesses take this statement, the firstborn of all creation, to wrongly teach that Jesus is a created being. It's not a new teaching of theirs, though, because... It was condemned in the 4th century at the Council of Nicaea by the Universal Church. We recited the Nicene Creed together, didn't we? Just a few moments ago, condemning what the Jehovah Witnesses today believe. And if Jehovah Witnesses are coming to your door and you do not know what to say, or you don't know or you do know what to say, but you're just tired of saying it, hand them a copy of the Nicene Creed and tell them that their belief was condemned by the Universal Church in 325 A.D. So, if the firstborn of all creation does not mean that Jesus is a created being, what does it mean? Well, allow me to take a few moments to explain this because it is so vitally important to understand. In the ancient world, it was the firstborn son who inherited the rights and privileges of leadership in the family. It was also the firstborn son of a monarch 
who inherited all the ruling authority over his father's kingdom. But if Christ is very God of very God, and there was never a time when he did not exist as a member of the Holy Trinity, then why was he given this title, the firstborn of all creation? And the answer is a simple one. It's because this title can also mean the highest or the preeminent one without any reference to birth at all. For example, in Psalm 89:27, God says about David, I will make you the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. And some sharp Bible student at that point might stand up and stop the teaching and say, hey, what's up with this? David wasn't even the firstborn son. But you see, by calling King David the firstborn son, God meant that he was making David the preeminent king over all other kings on the earth. And once the Bible student heard that, he almost immediately asked the question, how was King David the preeminent king over all of the other kings of the earth? And he would have been thrilled with the answer because he would have understood that David's throne had been established forever through the atoning death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, David's greater son. And he sees, he would see the student Christ reigning right now as king over all creation at the right hand of the Father as the firstborn Son. What is Paul doing here? Well, think of yourselves and picture this little church in the little town of Colossae whose membership professes faith in Jesus Christ, but they are tempted to think that believers in Christ can experience a higher level of spiritual fulfillment by participating in things like Jewish food laws and festival days or in living a life of asceticism. I can ramp up my spiritual fulfillment by specifically participating in these things that depend on my efforts. But beloved, that doesn't make any gospel sense at all. Because Jesus is enough. He's more than enough. But He's enough to both save us and He's enough to then bring us more and more into thankful service to Him, our King and our God. Well, next, the Apostle Paul teaches that He is the Creator. He's the firstborn Son, but He's not only the firstborn Son over all creation, He's also the Creator of all creation. And if the Apostle John were here this morning with us, He would have a hard time not standing up, interrupting the service, and bellowing out, Amen. Yes, in the beginning was the Word, 
And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. All things were made through Him. And without Him, nothing was made. Paul is building a magnificent description of Jesus Christ. And he is going all the way back to the beginning of creation to do it. Verse 16. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. Absolutely everything was created by Jesus Christ. All things visible. And also the invisible angelic realm was created by Christ. Commentators are united on these thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities referring to the angelic realm, but it would be a mistake for you and me to try to figure out these various ranks that are listed. Paul's main point is that Christ created the angels for his own glory. And one of the false teachings that was going around in Colossae was the worship of angels. It was being taught that through the mediation of angels, a deeper spiritual experience could be enjoyed by Christians. And it certainly doesn't seem that the confusion about angels has changed much in our own day. This past year, I was at a funeral and the sister of the deceased woman made the public announcement that her sister had gained her wings and that she was now an angel in heaven. But to think that a person turns into an angel when they die is to elevate angels to the point of worship. But besides that, why would anyone... Why would any Christian anyway who understood the truth that he or she was created in the image of God, the very image of God, want to become a completely different order of being not made in God's glorious image? And more to Paul's point, Jesus is the one who created the angels, and therefore angels have no redemptive power at all. Angels have their God-given purpose, and it's a magnificent one. But throughout the unfolding plan of redemption, since man's fall, angels have actually looked on with wonder and awe at what in the world God was doing to save a people for himself. Angels have largely been spectators of redemption's story. Both Paul and Peter describe the angels as those longing to understand the wonder of God's purposes in salvation. They watched 
when Jesus was crucified, when the Lord of glory, our Savior, was crucified, they watched. And then they filled the heavens with an angelic choir when He rose from the dead. But Paul tells us in Ephesians that it was not until the angels saw the gospel explode across Israel's border into every nation of the world that they understood the manifold wisdom of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's just, and they understood now what God in His wisdom was doing And Luke's Gospel, Luke's Gospel, children, tells us that the angels rejoice whenever one sinner repents and turns not to them in any way, shape, or form, but turns to Jesus for the fullness of salvation. And that's still true today. There's no biblical reason why that is not still true today. So children, and not just children, but but all of us, myriads and myriads of angels turn toward Christ in full applause in heaven when a sinner repents. And do you know what they sing? They sing together, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and might and honor and glory and blessing. Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb. Children, I wonder when all of heaven will rejoice because of your repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. To turn to Jesus, children, in faith, believing that He has taken care of all your sins. He's put them away to turn to Him. Immediately, heaven will erupt, just absolutely erupt, into rejoicing and praise. Maybe, children, you've already turned to Jesus. Maybe you've already given Him the only thing you can, your sin. And you have rested and found peace because you believe the gospel truth that Jesus is enough and that he is more than enough and that we can all just kind of skip home today because Jesus is sufficient. Today is the day of salvation. Flee from the wrath to come. Flee from the judgment to come and turn in repentance and faith to Jesus and Jesus alone. Fall into the loving arms of Jesus. That's what your pastor has done. That's what your parents have done. Why not you? 
Why not admit your sin and turn from your sin and say, I want you, Jesus, because you died for my sin. And for those of us here today who have been saved for years, look nowhere else, look nowhere else but to the preeminent Christ over all creation for spiritual growth and fullness until He takes you home. He's the firstborn of all creation. He's the creator of all creation. And last, He's the sustainer. Verse 17, And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Did you know that moment by moment, it's your Savior Jesus who is holding all creation together? Did you know that it's your Savior Jesus Christ who's keeping your body intact? He's keeping you alive every second of every minute, of every hour, of every day. Jesus, your Redeemer, is doing that. Without your Redeemer providentially doing that with consistency, the creation would immediately fall apart and cease to exist. Therefore, speaking of Jesus, the writer of Hebrews says, He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Isn't this all enough to convince us more in our hearts? And each one of us needs to be convinced more. We have not delved delved to the depths of the gospel yet, have we? The gospel hasn't taken hold of our lives like it could, has it? Isn't this enough to convince us that in the gospel, Jesus is the well that never runs dry and there is no other gospel, there is no other well? It doesn't exist. But this is the Jesus who loves you. This is the Jesus who wraps His perfect righteousness around you. And when you wake up tomorrow and you've got indigestion, you don't think you're doing so good because you haven't thought all the right thoughts and you haven't done all the right things. He wraps His perfect righteousness around you so that you are always acceptable through faith alone. What kind of a God is this that is so powerful? Remember the story of the boat on the Sea of Galilee? The the waves were crashing all around and the people in the boat were so fearful. What are you doing asleep? Don't you care? And then he got up. He says, oh, you have little faith. Peace be still. And the storm completely stopped. And they were more afraid then than they were with the waves. Who is this we're in this boat with? What manner of man is this that we are with? 
we should, we should, we should feel that same thing. As Christ is with us, what manner of man is with us right now? Who is this that is so powerful? He's the firstborn son. He's so infinitely powerful. He's the creator of all things. He's so powerful. It's him who sustains the world that he has created every second, even right now, so that you and I will learn better that the gospel is all we need and that Jesus Christ is sufficient. He's enough. He's more than enough. And based on a growing appreciation for the gospel is what springs forth fruit, the fruit of thankfulness. Yes, what we do does matter. But if it doesn't spring from the well of Christ, then it's full of empty promises and human works and it only makes us prideful. This is the God who made you and this is the God who saved you. Jesus should be the center of our homes. He should be the center of our work. He should be the center of our churches. He should be the center of our witness. He should be the center of our hearts. Why? I think you all can answer that. The question is, is he? But as you answer that, you must know that the Lord Jesus knows that we are sinners. He has wrapped us in His righteousness and we are justified before God through faith as a result. And He is so patient and good and kind and gracious to work with us and to make all things work together for our spiritual good. Is He... Maybe I should be asking it like this. Is he more than when you came in through those doors today? Having heard his voice, our great prophet and priest and king. Jesus is preeminent and he is enough. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask, Lord, for your blessing upon this message from heaven through your servant in the foolishness of preaching. For through the preacher you work mightily and as the word of God is faithfully taught and preached and the gospel is faithfully taught and preached you change lives and we're dependent on that forgive us and lift up our heads so that we might remind ourselves over and over and over that in Christ we have everything and it's in his name we pray
Amen.